0: We're doing a song after the message. Okay, sorry. Um, God willing, that is. So how I manage my time. If you have a Bible, please open it to the 44th Psalm. You'll find the notes of this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, the text of Psalm 44 is written on the back of the insert. <clears throat> and as I suggested this morning, um, even as we're in our time of singing... Now, this psalm, Psalm 44, is a, is a somber psalm, uh, turning on a dime from celebration to vexation, and yet, I think, very instructive for us. I'd like to begin our time by reading Psalm 44, we'll a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Let's read Psalm 44. A masculine of the sons of Korah, O God, we have heard with our ears Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. You have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. And have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle. Demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors. The derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. A laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before you. Before me. And shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. To the choirmaster, according to the lilies. Let's pray, Lord God. This psalm both celebrates your saving acts and voices unanswered questions about your failure to act. And so, Lord, um, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. This is a difficult psalm. yet you have given this song to your people knowing that there will be times when we will need to sing this to you, when this will express the frustration, the vexation, the questions of our hearts. So help us to receive it. Help us to not choke upon it, but to see it as good and you as good behind this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as I've tried to pick out various psalms for us to study, this is, I think, our 46th psalm. There's 150 or so in the book of psalms and a number of others throughout scripture. I've tried to highlight various themes. Uh, One of the things that has struck me and I love about the psalms is how variegated they are. If you just listen to Christian worship music on the radio, you might think that all the songs we sing are just yay, yes, celebratory, praise God, amen. There are certainly psalms that, that reflect that. Certainly there are. There are psalms that reflect other themes as well. God does not expect his people, both in the Old Covenant and his people now in the New Covenant, to be of one unchanging emotional state. And so there are psalms of triumph, psalms of loss, there are psalms of victory, there's a psalm before us of defeat, there are psalms confessing sin, and there are psalms, as this one, confessing faithfulness. God has given his people songs to sing in in all of the states of life. Last week, we looked at a psalm that dealt with the failure and the frustration and the apparent futility of this life, and the answer was... Much like we sang this morning and I asked the Lord that God was refining David. God was dissolving the things he loved as discipline for sin to cause him to put his hope upon him and him alone. So sometimes the difficulties we experience in life are the result of our sin. They're chastening. They're discipline. That is not the only reason why we have difficulties in our life. Jesus' disciples made that mistake of assuming all. Difficulty in life was a result of sin. All difficulty in life was judgment. Um, The disciples, Job's friends, thought the same thing. Whose sin caused this man to be born this way? His own or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. It was for the glory of God. Something close to that is the answer to this morning's psalm. I'd like to highlight its its location in the Psalter. Uh, Whoever arranged the book of Psalms in its final form, some post-exilic compiler, broke it into five books, and we are very near the seam of one of these books. Last week, we looked at Psalm 39, if you turn back there briefly, there's a progression that ends the first book of the Psalms, 38, 39, and 40. Both 38 and 39 are crying out to God to remove his hand of discipline, to hear him, to, to remove the pain of Dealing with sin. And then in in Psalm 40, we get the result. And you look at 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, as seen in Psalm 38, as seen in Psalm 39. And he inclined to me, and he heard my cry, and he drew me up out of the pit, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet on a rock. So there's a progression at the end of book 1 of crying out for deliverance from discipline, crying out for help, and then God hearing. God hearing. Psalm 41 carrying on the same theme. And then the the first book of the Psalms ends. In your Bible, you'll see Psalm 42 begins book two. And book two begins with a psalm we've already looked at. I I argue that Psalm 42 and 43 are one composition, one song. And it's an individual lament. David, oh, sorry, it's sons of Korah. One of the sons of Korah crying out, thirsty, hungry. You know this psalm, as the deer Pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And it alternates between lament and then encouragement. There's like almost a chorus that's repeated. Verse 5 Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Verse 11 Why are you cast down O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. And Psalm 43 continues that pattern. Verse 5, why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. So The second book of the Psalms opens with an individual lament. Now we move to a corporate lament. Uh, Psalm 42 and 43 are an individual cry for God. And Psalm 44 is a national cry. And and one phrase gets repeated. It's read you the title for this morning's message. You see it in verse eleven. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. Have scattered us among the nations. Verse twenty two. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And so, when things show up in repetition, um, it gives us some indication of central themes. This is a psalm written after some military defeat. The the commentators are all over the place about when this was written. Some have suggested, due to the reference to being scattered among the nations in verse 11, that this is written after the exile to Babylon. I think that's unlikely. Uh, Israel was deported to Babylon precisely because they were unfaithful. And God sent prophet after prophet. You can read Ezekiel chapter after chapter of how Israel was like an unfaithful, adulterous wife. This psalm confesses covenant faithfulness. I would actually suggest, if anything, there's a Davidic ring to this. The first two books of the Psalms are the books of David. Psalm book, Psalm book 2 ends, thus the prayers of David are ended. They don't contain the only Psalms written by David, but the wealth of them, the majority of them are there. But if you look at verse um, 9, but you've rejected us, disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies, turn over to Psalm 60. Which is of Davidic authorship. Look at Psalm 60, verse 10, a near word for word um, restatement. Have you not rejected us, O God? Have you not gone, you have not gone forth, O God, with our armies? So, despite David's successes, there were military defeats that David. It had happened to him that he wrote Psalms about. So we don't ultimately know when this is written in Israel's history. It could even be Davidic times. But it was a time when Israel was actually being faithful. So I tend to think it's earlier in their history, because as Israel progresses, they get more and more and more unfaithful. There are a few revivals where they return to the Lord, but by and large, things get worse, not better for Israel as they progress. The other thing I want you to note is the use of pronouns. Most of the psalm is written in first-person plural. Thus, verse 1, we have heard with our ears, our fathers, what deeds you performed, um, and and so on throughout the psalm. This we, us, our, corporate speaking, which makes the few verses of first-person pronouns significant. Look at verse 4. You are my King, not our king. You are my king, O God. You ordained salvation for Jacob. Verse 6 For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes. It goes back to plural. Verse 15 and 16 All day long, my disgrace is before me. So at least three times in this psalm, the, the voice speaking shifts. And I don't think this is purely for flourish, I think it suggests what's referred to as antiphonal praise. Antiphonal praises where one voice can say something and another voice can respond. And so I think this indicates some song leader, and I would suggest possibly Israel's king, sings in the first person. That would make sense given the military defeat. And it also makes the strength of verse 4 and verse 6. You are my king, O God, even stronger if it's the king himself singing this. Because Israel is a theocracy, the religious life and the political life are joined. So whoever is leading Israel in this song, whoever is singing in the first person voice is some sort of political, religious leader, quite possibly the king himself. And so we'll move through that, but by and large, most of this song is is sung as a corporate group, this is national defeat. Some sort of military defeat has taken place, and the nation is vexed and confused, troubled, and they sing to God those troubles. Now, the psalm itself breaks down really neatly into three sections. We've got the past, the present, and the future. Uh, in verses 1 through 8, a glorious past. As they consider God's saving deeds as mighty works in the past. And that breaks down into the two further subsets. First... God planted Israel in the land, and now we're looking to the far past. First three verses: "O oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand, drove out the nations with them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Now I want you to keep your thumb here and turn over to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. And keep a thumb there, because we're going to go back and forth between this psalm and, and the early chapters of Deuteronomy a few times. Um, I want you to see just how well National Israel is doing in this psalm. The book of Deuteronomy is written by Moses. It's a series of his farewell sermons and addresses as Israel is on the other side of the Jordan just getting ready to go take possession of the land under Joshua. The very taking of the land that's spoken of here, where God planted them in Israel, is just about to happen when Deuteronomy is written. I want you to see the warnings God gives Israel and how in this psalm, in Psalm 44, they're heeding them. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. And lest it depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, that they may teach their children so. And this has been done. Psalms 44 begins confessing this multi-generational faithfulness. God instructs them, be careful. You don't want to forget me. You don't want to forget what I've done. So be very diligent to teach your children and have them teach their children and them teach their children. And Psalm 44 begins confessing that this has taken place successfully. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days that's good. The very thing God warns them, at least in this instance, was heeded. It's working properly. In fact, I think we'll see in Psalm 44, Israel as a theocratic nation is firing on all cylinders. Things are working properly. God planted Israel in the land. So they begin with their introduction. Our fathers have told us of your deeds. Then in verse 2, the declaration. What is it God did? God gave them the land And drove out the nations. Look at verse 2. You, and just the the, the emphasis in the second person singular pronouns, the you's that show up in this psalm. God is getting all the credit, all the glory. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. And in contrast to that, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. So here's a summary of the book of Joshua, the conquest of Canaan. And all glory and all credit is going to God. It wasn't, man, that Joshua was a military genius. No, they see in the deliverance and the giving of the land, the work of God. God did it with his hand. He destroyed the nations with his hand, and he planted Israel with his hand. He did it. He is responsible. And they sum that up in verse 3 emphatically. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Hopefully, you're still back in Deuteronomy. Turn to chapter 7. This is going to link off of something God says there. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Pick it up in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord God set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love for those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. So they're warned in Deuteronomy don't think this is about how great you are. Don't think that this conquest is going to be about how mighty you are. And again, in Psalm 44, national Israel confesses this. They get it. They understand. The conquest of Canaan was not a demonstration of their might and their worth. No, it was a demonstration of God's might and his faithfulness. And ultimately, it was an evidence of his delight upon them. Why did this happen in the days of old? Because, verse 3 ends, you delighted in them. They positively affirm. God did this. They positively deny. It was not... Their sword. So it was God, it wasn't them. Yes, amen. Good. Let me go from the far past to the more recent past. And what we see here is first that God planted Israel in the land, second that God prospered Israel in the land. And here, the passing of the baton takes place without faltering. They too confess the same reality. And if I'm right that this singular voice in verse 4 is the king speaking, then here you have a soloist stand-up. Notice the shift from plurals to singular. You are my king. Somebody leading in the congregation stands up and affirms, God is my king. Turn to Deuteronomy 17. When Israel's theocracy was working properly, There well would be a king, and that king would see himself under the ultimate kingship of God. So in Deuteronomy 17, picking it up in verse 14, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I'll set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from whom your brothers shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, he shall not return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess of silver and gold. So the king is prohibited from gathering those things that might make him put his trust in his own wealth, in his own power, in his own political alliances Why? So that he would trust in God. What is he to do? And when he sits on the throne of the kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, in a book, a copy of the law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. So the kings of Israel were supposed to have their own handwritten copy of the law. The Levitical priests had to check Verify. And that became their daily Bible for reading. <laughs> and they were not supposed to gather many horses, much money. And, and the, the wives is primarily a means of making political alliances. So, so the wisdom of the world is you, you secure your borders, you secure your nation by getting a lot of money so that if you need to wage a war, you can. You've got lots of horses so that if you need to wage a war, they're on hand. And you've got a lot of political alliances so that you'll dwell safely. Don't do that. Instead, get busy writing your own handwritten copy of the law. Read that every day and learn the fear of the Lord. And in Psalm 44, back to Psalm 44, the king, if I'm right here, has done exactly that. And so he has not been tricked into thinking that his wealth and his might and his power is decisive. Rather, he affirms, you are my king, O God. And he pleads ordained salvation for Jacob. In affirmation, Israel declares its faith in God. And really, this is emphatic. You alone are my king. And then the people, I think, respond to this. Through you, we push down our foes. The king's not getting the glory for any past military defeats. God is. It's the exact same logic of the first section. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. To which the soloist rises again. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us, the people now responding again, from all our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually. We will give thanks to your name forever, Salah. So, first, the affirmation Israel declares its faith in God. Second, Explanation. Israel is victorious through trust in God. They get it. The only reason we are successful in any of our military endeavors is because we are trusting in you, because you are fighting for us, because you are putting our enemies to shame. They get it. It's great. There's no confusion. Later, Israel, if we can just send down and make an alliance with Pharaoh, and we can send some messengers down there, and he might help us out, then maybe we can handle this. No, they get it. God and God alone, their trust in him is what gives them victory. And they confirmed this through their praise. Israel boasts in God for his deliverance. Now that's similar to a psalm we looked at just a few weeks ago, Psalm 34. Remember, a psalm where David is celebrating a victory. God delivered him from Abimelech at Gath. And he says, I will praise and those who are humble will join with me in my boast. He says in Psalm 34. Um, 4 verse 2 My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And here, these people are boasting in God continually. We will give thanks to your name forever. Salah. And if the psalm had ended just there, at verse 8, we would think what a triumphant, majestic, wonderful confession of faith and faithfulness. What a wonderful psalm confessing God's greatness and power. But, of course, the psalm does not end here. In many respects, this setup sets the contrast up. There's a salah, probably meaning pause, meditation, and then a strong, adversative but, or yet, begins section 2. So we move from the glorious past to a disastrous present. Disastrous present. And again, God is seen as responsible. I want to read a quote from a commentator. This strong view of God, just as strong, in fact, as the view expressed in the opening section, Israel's troubles are not the result of a weak God, unable to cope with the superior threats of the enemy. God is entirely able to deliver and save his people. That's why the suffering that the believing community experiences is such a dilemma. The problem is not a lack of power, but why God has failed To act. See, the same you, you, you is credited to God here. Sometimes when we try to wrestle with failure in life, we're tempted to try to let God off the hook. God does the nice things, and the bad things, well, that was Satan. Or that was free will. Or that was, um, I don't even, we can come up with so many different excuses. And again and again, That is not where people find their hope. These people are suffering. They are confused. They're not confused about the sovereignty of God. They're not confused about God's power and his plan. No, you have rejected and disgraced us. Verse 10, you have made us turn back. Verse 11, you have made us like sheep for the slaughter. Verse 12, you have sold your people for a trifle. Verse 13, you have made us the taunt. Verse 14, you have made us a byword. There is absolutely no confusion both on Israel's king and Israel nationally who is ultimately responsible for this military defeat and failure. None. That is not the way they ease the difficulty of suffering and failure. And I would encourage you, settle that in your mind. Either God is sovereign or he's not in control at all. A God who is only sort of in control is no hope whatsoever. It's a quote the late and great R.C. Sproul, if there is a single maverick molecule in the universe, and what he means is if there's a single molecule in the universe that is not directly under God's control, how do we know that is not the molecule that prevents Jesus from returning? See, God can only predict the future if he's in control of all of what takes place. If there are portions of what God... Uh, if there are portions of what goes on in this world God is not in control of, he literally is not controlling, those may be the things that thwart his purposes. Our hope is not found in, well, God had nothing to do with this. That's not where they go to. They get, God is in control. You have done this. And they start to list what God has done. So, point A what God has done is painfully clear. What God has done is painfully clear. He begins by recounting the military defeat. He has not fought for them, causing them defeat. You have rejected us. You have disgraced us. You have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe. Those who hate us have gotten spoil. So he has not fought with them, causing them defeat. This then, of course, leads to them being slaughtered, scattered, and sold as a trifle. Strong language. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. Of course, Israel and their worship of the living God were slaughtering sheep regularly, especially at Passover time. And so the picture of weak, helpless sheep being herded up, lined up, being killed is is common and in their minds. That's what you've made us into, that helpless, that weak, that pathetic you have sold your people for a trifle. That, that, again, is an expression used in the law in Deuteronomy 32.30 to describe what God did to the other nations. Listen to Deuteronomy 32.30. Speaking, how could one have chased a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them? The Lord had given them up. Book of Judges describing how... Um, God gave his people over to servitude to the Philistines, he uses that same expression twice. God sold them to the Philistine. So they were gods. God possessed them, and God's apparently given them to somebody else. And worse yet, they don't see what God's gotten out of it. It's one thing to, to be given up for a mighty cause but they're vexed doubly so, not just because God has sold them, but he's sold them for a trifle. He's treated them, in other words, lightly. It does not look as though you treasure us, Lord, they're saying. It looks as though you regard us lightly. You've sold us for no high price. Which leads, I think, to the most painful part, not just the defeat and the slaughter, but the taunting and the shame. You have made us the taunt of our neighbor's the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. And the king speaks again, I believe. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and my shame has covered my face. The sound of the taunter and reviler, the sight of the enemy and the avenger. We just celebrated the the anniversary of D-Day, the decisive... Um, battle that changed the course of World War II. Just imagine for a moment how disillusioned, confused, and vexed would the Allied forces be had they lost World War II. We we were on the right side. We were fighting for what was right. God, what happened? Something like that has happened here. Some completely unexpected defeat. Because up until this point, we've got one further out, don't we? The out would be maybe... They sinned. You remember in the conquest of uh, Canaan, Achan takes some of the spoils from Jericho. Jericho is meant to be entirely devoted to destruction. No one's supposed to take any spoils of war, but Achan takes a cloak, some silver from Shinar, and he buries them, and then they lose the next battle. And the people are vexed. Joshua is vexed. Lord, what gives? What goes on? And the Lord's answer, there's sin in the camp. And up until this point in the psalm, that might be the way out. And so we might be tempted to think, ah, you're unaware of it, but there's some sin taking place. That's why you have experienced this judgment. But that's not the case. This psalm will not give us that out. If we move on now, point B, why God has done it is provokingly unclear. The real difficulty of this psalm is the double whammy of what God has done and the inexplicable nature of why on earth has he done it. All this has come upon us, though we have not forsaken you, forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the hearts, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are guarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is really the shocking, most shocking part of the psalm. So shocking, in fact, that some people don't even believe it. One or two commentators um, think Israel's lying here. I, I don't think that works for a number of reasons, least of which then the Scripture's lying. But we'll see, I think, ultimately by Paul's citation of verse 22, that no, they're, they're being honest. We're not going to ease the dilemma by saying, no, no, there's secret sin. Be, be wary. If you're doing that, you're following the steps of Job's friends, the disciples. They insist, just like Job, they're innocent. Not ultimately sinless, but they've been covenantally faithful. So let's take a look. They had not forgotten God. Where's covenant? Deuteronomy 4.23 warns them not to do that, and they haven't. It warns them that God will you know, judge them if they forget the covenant, but they have not. Deuteronomy 4.23 says, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And they say, we haven't. We have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. They had not forgotten God or his covenant. Second, they had not departed in thought or deed. So they've been loyal. They've been obedient and faithful. Look at verse 18. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed. And by speaking to heart and steps, they're speaking of the inward man and the outward actions. And there's been a uniform... Faithfulness to God. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Job makes a similar protestation in Job 31.7. If my steps had turned aside from the way and my heart had gone after my eyes, if any spot had struck my hands, then he says God would be right in judging me. Israel is confessing, we, we've remembered you, we've remembered your covenant. Our heart has not turned aside, our steps have not departed from your way. Yet, you have broken us in the place of jackals. Covered us with the shadow of death. They have been broken and covered in death's shadow. Now that phrase, "a place of jackals," is a picture of desolation. It shows up a couple times in the Old Testament. I'll give you one example in, in Isaiah, um, in Isaiah forty thirty four thirteen. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be a haunt of jackals and a boat of ostriches. What they're saying is this, God, you have crushed us and you've done it in a desolate place. And it's just adding things to be more difficult. To, to be broken and hurt when you're in your home around help is one thing. To be broken and crushed in a desolate place is another. And then using another expression familiar to us. They're covered in death's shadow. And who can forget Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'll fear and They're saying that's where we are. We're in this desolate place, and we see our death looming. Perhaps this is in reference to a fear of an ultimate and final military defeat, where the nation itself loses its sovereignty and is taken captive. Who knows? So there's been this military defeat, and they see death looming. They don't get it. We've been faithful. We've been obedient. We haven't forgotten you. We haven't turned to other gods. Next, point four. They know God knows their innocence. That's that's what makes this even worse. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. They know that God knows their innocence. Again, a big sovereign view of God. You can't make that up. Maybe God was mistaken and thought they were being unfaithful. Maybe he was not aware of how faithful they'd been. No, they say, we know that God sees all. In fact, uh, Gerald Wilson says this, refusing to rely on their own protestation of innocence alone, the community calls on the covenant God to bear witness himself. It is impossible to hoodwink God, they declare. Their innocence or guilt is open to divine scrutiny, and they are confident he will admit their innocence. Let me get to verse 22. And I think here is as far as this psalm gets in answering the problem. I I hope when we finish this psalm to spend a few minutes giving a fuller answer. But they they come this far. They they know the answer is not... God's not sovereign. No, God's in control. He did this. And they know the answer is not that he's unaware of their faithfulness. He's, he knows their faithfulness. So the closest they can come to is this. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Yet for his sake, they are sheep to be slaughtered. And I think what they're saying is this. Lord, and this, this is the key, your sake. You have some purpose and plan. You have some purpose and plan in in, in slaughtering us. And so for your sake, we are slaughtered. We don't like it. We don't understand it. We'd like it to stop. But we see this is your will. You have a purpose and a plan. For your sake, this is happening. It is not meaningless. I'll read a further quote from Wilson. Wilson. Without this anguished acknowledgement, we would be tempted to spend our time criticizing the lack of self-awareness that stands behind the community's naive and misguided attempt to claim innocence. For we would like to prove them guilty so as not to have to accept as our own the recognition that to be chosen by God entails undeserved suffering. Let me take what he just said and say that a little differently. We are tempted, he's saying, to think They're naive. They're unaware of their sin. Because then we can tell ourselves God doesn't do stuff like this to them, and he won't do stuff like this to me. Looking that in the face is difficult. We're tempted, he says, to do that. But this this confession makes it clear we can't do that. Because what they are saying, and I'll get back to my quote, this is at the core of what Israel is saying in verse 22. They are saying, we are innocent, faithful to you alone, and yet we're becoming martyrs for your sake. They don't know why, but it's according to God's will. This is, again, similar to Job's resolution of the problem. where He says in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. God has a purpose. For his sake, he's killing us. We don't understand it. But we accept that. Now, that doesn't cause them, then, in in cold stoicism and fatalism, then to say, okay, then just keep it up. Thank you, sir, may I have another. No, they cry out for deliverance. But ultimately, as far as they can get in this psalm, God has a purpose. For his sake, this is happening. It looks as though he's selling us cheaply. It looks as though he's abandoned us. Then they close with a desperate plea. A desperate plea to the future, looking to the future. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O oh Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject this forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down in the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So I want to make another point here. Understanding and accepting and believing in the sovereignty of God over all things. That God is sovereign over military defeat. That God is sovereign over sickness and disease. That God is sovereign over life and death. Does not and ought not to lead us to some cold fatalism. Whatever will be, will be. This psalm, I want you to see this. You did 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 this. And yet, feeling free to cry out as his children, Daddy, please make it stop. Look at the boldness. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself! Do not reject this forever. They can in one song absolutely affirm, the Lord has done this. We don't understand why he has done this. God Wake up and pay attention. Now, of course, they're not saying God is sleeping, sleeping. It's it's a metaphor for, for turn your ear and your eye to us. Attend to us. Point A, rouse yourself. Accept us. Attend to us. Pay attention to us, in other words. Next, point B, remember us. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget Our affliction and oppression is, of course, a play. We haven't forgotten you, Lord. Don't forget us. Remember our suffering. Remember our affliction. And that verse, our soul is bowed down in the dust, our belly clinging to the ground. This is a vivid picture of the humiliation of defeat. In fact, when Joshua, in the conquest of Canaan, defeated, defeated a number of the little kinglets in in Canaan. I say kinglets because they're just city rulers. They've walled cities that they rule. Listen to what Joshua did to them. Joshua 10, 24 to 26. When When they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. They came near and put their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. So this is a vivid picture of humiliation and defeat. Here was a once mighty ruler and king, and you've got your foot on his neck. He's in the dust. And something like that is being alluded to. Our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the dust. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Um, they're still crying out to God. I want to quickly draw a couple of applications from this and, then, and look at two other passages. First, amazingly, Israel, despite all of this, is still praising God. Look at verse 8. In God we have boasted, past tense, And we will give thanks to your name forever. Now, when that first shows up in Psalm 44, you may not think anything of it, but considering what follows, the declaration of the commitment, we will still praise God, has got to be seen in light of all that God has done, us not understanding it, but we're still going to praise him. When you don't understand what God is doing, you are welcome like a child to cry out, Father, I do not understand, help but do not stop worshiping and serving him. Job's wife gave him the advice, curse God and die. Don't listen to that. They don't understand. It hurts an awful lot. The shame and the reproach is unbearable. But we're still going to praise God. And in part, that's because they've heard these deeds. Notice again the importance of teaching your children. I've got to believe in some part that the reason they're able to be this faithful is because... They heard with their ears what their fathers and their fathers and their fathers said to them. The very warning in Deuteronomy is paying off here. God warns them in Deuteronomy, Make sure you tell your kids and their kids tell their kids so that you won't turn from me. And here in this dark test and trial, they're faithful in part because their parents did do that. So this psalm only gets us this far. God has a purpose. We don't understand the purpose. We don't like what's going on. And we're free to cry out this. Turn, turn to Isaiah 53. I, I deal with a lot of people uh, who suffer. Generally, people who want to talk to the pastor aren't wanting to talk to the pastor because they want to s- celebrate what God's been up to. Sometimes that's the case, and those are, those are happy days. But frequently, I'm meeting with people to, to weep with them, to mourn with them, to grieve with them. And one of the dear truths that I take is that We may not know what God is up to, but I firmly believe the suffering that God allows in our lives is not meaningless. God accomplishes good things through the willing suffering of his people. I think that's the major theme of the entire first epistle of Peter. But using the language, the metaphor of Psalm 44, we are like sheep who've been slaughtered. I want to think of another one who is like a sheep who was unjustly oppressed and think did god perhaps do anything good there what was in other words if we can see god doing something good in another similar example that might help us take hope and confidence that he's doing something equally good here and so in Psalm isaiah 53 we read of unjust suffering par excellence Verse 3, he was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, as one with whom, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. He's suffering shame and ignominy. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. There's the sovereignty. And afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to be slaughtered. So is there any other example of someone who was accounted as a lamb to be slaughtered, who for no sin on their own part was crushed and afflicted by God. Was God doing anything good there? Well, you know the answer. Ultimately, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord Jesus, I've been faithful to you, God. I've trusted in you, God. I have not turned aside from you. And this Unjust suffering happened to the Lord Jesus. And Isaiah 53 makes it clear that in doing that, the Lord was saving us. If you're a Christian today, you're only a Christian because God at times afflicts his children with unjust suffering. Understand that. If you're a Christian today, it is only because God does things like this. Because the Lord Jesus was unjustly afflicted not for his own sin. His very son, in spite of his perfect obedience and faithfulness, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so I would suggest to you that if you feel that you're in a similar place, in Isaiah, and sorry, not Isaiah, in Psalm 44, we too can feel like sheep led to the slaughter. God was doing something amazingly good when Jesus was led to the cross like a sheep To be slaughtered. And now turn to Romans 8, where we'll end our time. Paul cites this passage. Paul cites Psalm 44, and he gives us the application. The early church was beginning to experience persecution and unjust suffering. The Roman officials were beginning to crush them and torture them. And the Apostle Paul desperately wants the church at Rome to know that none of these things separate them from God's love. I want you here this morning to know two things. One, God in his wisdom and goodness can and will and does cause difficult things to come into your life. But you need to equally understand, God loves you. He is not angry with you in that sense. He's, nothing has separated you from that, and he is working good. That's Paul's emphasis here. Verse 31 of chapter 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, like we just saw in Isaiah 53, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation. Now unpack those words. Tribulation. What did tribulation look under Nero and Caesar? Or persecution. Or famine. Or nakedness. Or danger. Or sword. We can fly through that list. That's precisely the type of stuff Psalm 44 is talking about, which is why I think he quotes it right here. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We were guarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul quoting that here, and I think confirming my reading of it, is yes, God loves you, and he's redeemed you, and he sent his son for you, and yes, you may be being faithful, and these things may and will come into your life. Understand, they do not put the slightest chink. There's no daylight coming between you and God and his commitment for you. His love for you. No, verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. For his sake, these things are happening. And ultimately, his plan and his purpose for his sake is our ultimate conquering and triumph. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So these things can happen. Do not take hope in a lie that says God only does the nice things and when bad things happen, that was the devil, that was God being a gentleman, staying hands off. But also... Do not be tempted to think in light of that, that God is harsh, uncaring, unloving. We're told to look again and again to his son. If you have any doubt in God's care and concern for you in light of the difficult things he's brought into your life, look to the gift of his son and look to the good God was doing in unjustly afflicting his son for you and take some hope, some comfort, he might be doing another good thing. I don't know what but some other good thing or innumerable good things through your suffering. At the end of the day, our hope is not in our own strength and might, but in his grace and mercy. Though he slay me yet, I will praise him. We're going to sing our closing song. I know it's late, but we need to sing our closing song. He will hold me fast. We need to respond. It's it's okay to be confused. It's okay to be hurting. It's okay not to understand. Let us praise him still. Please Stand as the worship team comes up.